Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So welcome to what I think is the 21st episode in our ongoing series entitled Paradigms of Leadership, in which we look at uh, various strategies by which uh, Muslim men and women across the continents and down the Muslim centuries have uh, uh, been exemplary. Uh, and you may have noticed that I've also been focusing quite a bit on our European and British Muslim stories, which uh, in the nature of things compared to the larger history of the Ummah might seem a little bit on the edge. So last time we were looking at Sheikh Ahmed Bullock. I do think there are important uh, actual lessons for our reality to deal with some <coughs> up-to-date people who are part of the uh, Islam known as groundwater Islam. You can divide Muslims in Europe into groundwater Muslims and rainwater Muslims. Rainwater Muslims are those who like the pure rain come from overseas, which is the majority in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe. Uh, most Muslims have been there for a thousand years. Uh, in fact, Islam came to Russia before Christianity did. <laughs> the rhetoric there uh, is quite different. Uh, and then the groundwater Muslims, who are the Muslims who are simply uh, brought out of the earth simply by the beauty of Islam and the attractions of Tawheed. Uh, and these two different stories in our communities in Western Europe are now, uh, as would be expected, interacting, intermarrying, becoming a single Western Muslim reality. So uh, if we look at the story of British Islam, uh, we find if we look at groundwater Islam, uh, it goes way back. And it's an important thing to tell our children. Uh, Certainly, British schools are not going to teach the history of Islam in Britain when they do history. You're lucky if you get the Holocaust and the causes of the First World War, and that's it. Uh, but it's a very interesting history, and it's important to ground ourselves here in that history, going back uh, at least as far as Robert of St Albans, um, who died in 1187, who was the famous English crusader knight. He was one of the Knights Templars who converted to Islam and uh, critically played a role as a squadron leader during Salah ad-Din's Battle of Hattin, one of the most important battles in Islamic history and also in world history. It's nice to think that British Muslim history begins with that act of heroism, that amazing battle when the Muslims set fire to the dry grass around the Crusaders who are already thirsty and behind the smoke and the flames, the thirsty Crusaders could hear the dhikr of the Muslim armies. Uh, and then the, the extraordinary battle that was such a blow to uh, Crusaders uh, that when the Pope, Pope Urban III, heard the news, he actually died of shock, <laughs> had a heart attack or something. It was, Pope Urban III was a keen advocate of the crusading principle. So our history goes back at least as, as far as that. Um, but uh, we also think of people like uh, Jack Ward, dies in 1622, one of many Muslims who end up uh, with the Ottomans or sort of with Muslim principalities in North Africa, uh, known in Europe as a, as a pirate. He became Yusuf Reis. Uh, and a lot of Muslims, well, a lot of non-Muslims, especially quite surprised when BBC History did a documentary at the time of the pirates of the Caribbean craze and discovered that actually the original Jack Sparrow was actually Jack Ward and was a Muslim. <laughs> Uh, so it's important we know these things and tell our kids um, so that they have a sense of ownership of their Muslim history and their Western Muslim identity. And then another of my famous characters, and really I could do a paradigms lecture about 
all of these. They all have extraordinary stories. It, it is such a great history. Um, Thomas Keith dies in 1815. He is from Scotland. After various adventures, ends up converting to Islam and becoming a, a member of the Ottoman military. And under Tosun Pasha, this is the battle between the Ottoman Khilafah and the first Wahhabi rebellion. Uh, and uh, Thomas Keith converts to Islam and actually becomes the governor, the Wali of Medina, which of course a great honour, um, possibly the only British person ever to be a governor of either of the holy cities, uh, and plays a significant role in, in dealing with the <coughs> Wahhabi rebellion. And eventually, unfortunately, he's caught in an ambush and the Wahhabis kill him. And so I guess he becomes a shaheed. So <laughs> such an amazing history, the history of groundwater Islam. And I don't think we need to make any apologies for dealing with some of those characters. Uh, and in England, of course, Abdullah Quilliam, whom we take to be the founder of British Islam as it is today, founder of the first active mosque in the UK, etc., born 1856. And inshallah, we'll do an episode about him, his story. Again, it's another extraordinary story. Almost uh, by definition, these are unusual, strong, uh, non-conformist personalities. But the, uh, the personality I want to focus on today as an example of a sort of leadership, which you might say is cultural and spiritual, a kind of sapiential or wisdom-based leadership, um, although he was never in charge of anything, and had no books published in his lifetime, uh, is somebody called Ivan Agueli. 1869 to 1917. Ivan Agueli, <coughs> until recently, wasn't known very much, uh, at least outside Sweden. In Sweden, he's famous as an artist. Um, the Swedish post office puts his face or his paintings on postage stamps and there's an Agueli Museum in Sala, which is the town where he was born in central Sweden. So known as one of 19th century, early 20th century Sweden's four or five major artists, post-impressionist artists. Uh, and there's a, been a dim recollection of the fact that he was also an active Muslim, but that side of his personality has always been uh, a little bit marginalised. <coughs> but really a very interesting individual and one whom I wish to spend some time on today, not least because uh, the 150th anniversary of his birth recently triggered a revival of academic interest in Agueli. So this seems to be a good time to kind of try and make him a little bit better known um, and a little bit uh, uh, less in, in the shadows. So. Those who have written to try and flag up the Muslimness of the man and to dig his often quite obscure story, sort of letters stuck in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris and the Swedish National Library and not really touched for a hundred years. Um, and that was really the way he wanted it because he was very much somebody who hated the limelight. But uh, in... 1981, a novel was written about him, which kind of made him a little bit more of a real-life character rather than just a name attached to some, some nice pictures. And this is a novel uh, by somebody called Torbjörn Safer, 
who is uh, quite a well-known Swedish cultural figure. He was head of the Swedish National Film School for a while, has written a number of books about boxing, um, studied philosophy and so forth. Uh, uh, and during the course of writing this book, and the book is entitled Ivan Agueli, a novel about freedom. And that's going to be an important principle, the idea of freedom. Uh, Safe, who had for long been involved with the anarchist movement in Sweden, actually converted to Islam. And since then has been one of the recognised figures in Swedish Islam. Um, using uh, the name Ali Toba, he writes in Minaret, which is the journal of the uh, Swedish Islamic Academy in, uh, in Stockholm, and is uh, author of some, some reputable books. But coming into Islam from this <coughs> rather startling anarchist uh, direction. So uh, that triggers an interest, even though it's a kind of romanticised and novel type version of his life. Uh, and then, as I say, following the anniversary in 2019, uh, some academic con uh, conventions and publications, uh, the one in the middle here, edited by Mark Sedgwick, who is the expert really on uh, lineages of certain European esotericisms in the early 20th century in, in particular, uh, many of which claim or tacitly acknowledge that Agueli stands as one of the founding figures, uh, held a conference uh, in which a number of, of scholars have written, uh, and it's been published under the title Anarchist, Artist, Sufi, The Politics, Painting and Esotericism of Ivan Agueli, edited by Mark Sedgwick. And alas, it's one of those tiresome academic tomes which cost about £70, so even though it's a really amazing story, <coughs> not many people are going to learn about it. Great example of something being buried. Uh, academic publishers tend not to know a good thing when they see it. And the third thing, which is much more accessible, uh, is this book, Ivan Agueli, Sensation of Eternity Selected Writings, translated and edited by Oliver Fotros. Is one of two books that is written in order to try and disinter <coughs> the Agueli legacy for people in Europe. And uh, essentially what he has done has been to look up old letters, articles in now really very hard to find, obscure esoteric Martinist Freemason journals and odd things, as we'll see as we go through today's journey, uh, in order to produce what Agueli in his lifetime never produced, which is a book. And this is actually inexpensive, and I would recommend um, that, uh, that people buy this book, because even though his writing's so long ago, this is like 130 years ago when European Islam was kind of unimaginable, it's really one of the pioneers, that there are some things that he really gets right that are immediately relevant to our situation and haven't really aged at all. And uh, as we'll see, he, he is the first um, to come to some of the terms and the concepts which are now our bread and butter. So, yeah, sensation of eternity, uh, worth investing in. So, the biodata. He was born in this little town, Sala, central Sweden, 24th of May, 1869. 
And his father is a vet, Johan. And his mother, Anne, is from a farming family. Uh, the father is super strict, a kind of tiger father, highly aspirational for his son, who seemed very disappointing. He didn't really do very well at school. Uh, also the kind of father who wants his son to do well economically, disapproves of the young uh, uh, Agueli's interest in art. Whoever made money out of art, this is... Uh, Something that, that continues today. So he sent his son to a technical college in Stockholm. Okay, he can't get his exams right, but at least he can study something and make something of himself. Uh, in Stockholm, he reads very, very, very extensively, including some of the sort of fashionable thinkers of the late 19th century, particularly those who express a disillusion with the progress of post-enlightenment and industrial Western society, its anomie, its urban blight, its industrialism, its distance from nature, its distance from the spirit, Nietzsche, Ibsen, Strindberg, his in that kind of world. But his key inspiration in the early period, uh, really important to understand this, is Swedenborg, one of the strangest and in many ways crankiest inspired Protestants of the 18th century, dies in 1772, known uh, in some circles today primarily as a scientist. It seems that he was the first one to come up with the concept of the neuron. He was interested in the brain and its functions and did some serious work, but mainly experienced various, what he took to be inspirational uh, moments in his life uh, that led him on from a kind of Lutheranism, Lutheranism into a sort of reformed Lutheranism, following a series of dreams and strange visitations uh, part of which was that there is a, a complex set of symbiotic correspondences between the form of things and the meaning of things, in other words, between the material and the spiritual worlds. This is a, a common theme amongst some of the late Protestant mystics, that they don't like the, the, the Cartesian separation between mind and stuff, and they don't like, similarly, the idea that the world is somehow fallen and dreadful and you can only see vague sparks of the divine in it, whereas God is some kind of transcendent being uh, in, another, in another environment. Uh, he rejects the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, uh, which he points out isn't there amongst the earliest Christians, it's not in the Apostles' Creed, but it pre is present in the Nicene Creed. So he believes in what we would call tahrif. Christianity represents a distortion of its original teachings. Uh, he denies the atonement because he doesn't think that a perfect God is incapable of forgiving human beings without a price being paid. Uh, so really very marginal. This is kind of the radical wing of, of Protestantism. He is influenced by some people who were involved in complex ways, and it's hard to trace this, by some sub-Islamic currents in the radical English Reformation, John Toland's book, Christianity Not Mysterious. Uh, and he was also in London during the trial of somebody called William Whiston, who was professor, Lucasian professor of mathematics in Cambridge, was Isaac uh, Newton's successor. Newton himself had been convinced of the falsity of the Trinity, and Whiston similarly denied it, 
but made the mistake of actually talking about it. So he was sacked from his professorship in, in Cambridge and faced a heresy trial, and Swedenborg was in London during that period. Um, and there is an interesting question that probably can't be answered as to the extent to which this kind of strongly Unitarian spiritualization of Christianity that happens in these uh, late Reformation circles owes some kind of triggering to Sufi influences. We know that Whiston read Haib and Yakuzan, which have been translated here in Cambridge, and there is something going on there, um, the Quakers as well. But in any case, this kind of unity view of existence and this benign idea of a creator who couldn't possibly want a blood atonement, uh, a god of compassion and mercy who transcended any triune or any other differentiation, uh, has uh, attracted the attention of quite a number of people in Islamic studies who've pointed to convergences between Swedenborg and Ibn Arabi. Henri Corbin um, certainly noted that, so did Anne-Marie Schimmel. In any case, uh, this is, you know, Swedenborg is from Sweden and buried in Uppsala Cathedral and this is the kind of spiritual nourishment which the young Agueli is receiving and indeed his mother is very distantly related to, to Swedenborg. So when he goes to Stockholm to do this dreary technical college thing, uh, Agueli goes to the house of a Lutheran pastor friend who has become a Swedenborgian. And there is, even today, a separate church, the Swedenborgian church, which is quite small. But mainly what he wants to do is to paint. Now, the painting world in Stockholm at the time, as in England, is divided between traditional academicians with their formal tableau and their set-piece allegorical statements of mythological or Christian scenes, and avant-garde painters. And uh, even when he's still a teenager, there's a number of, of senior artists in Stockholm who really think that he has talent and they like his work. And so finally, when his father sees that he's just intoxicated by this painting thing, his father gives him permission to stop his technical training and to go to Paris, the centre of uh, this modern movement, in order to study painting. So in 1890, he goes to Paris, and this is going to be one of the key events of his life. And in Paris, he studies not at the kind of official academy with its sort of traditional, rather pompous, uh, posed type of art, but another place called the Académie Julien. Interestingly, that's the place where 20 years earlier Etienne Dine had studied. Etienne Dine, for those Muslims who are interested in those things, also converted to Islam, becomes Nasir al-Din, and did some famous paintings of the Hajj, which are interesting documentaries of, of their time. He moved to Algeria, lived in Bousaada, um, but quite, quite different. Um, so the Académie Julien is more modern. They accept female students. They don't have exams or prizes. It's more creative, more organic, more of a commune, really. Now, at this stage, 1890s, um, painting has already moved beyond the sort of impressionist uh, stage. This is the age of the post-impressionist, the age of Gauguin. And interestingly, quite a lot of the painters are really interested in matters of the spirit. It's important to understand this because there's a certain secular bias in modernity's history of itself that assumes that all of these great artists like Matisse and Cezanne were all kind of happy atheists deconstructing everything. It's not the case at all. Most of them were actively involved in some kind of spiritual search, but not for church Christianity, but for something which they took to be more 
spiritual, sometimes neo-platonic, um, and uh, much of the art of the Impressionist and the Post-Impressionist can be understood as an attempt to bring to the surface certain patterns of form, colour, light, which impinge directly upon the soul without the distraction of tasweer, as we would put it, the attempt almost photographically to make an image of the surface of what is there. They're trying to look at the bottom of what is there. So we find um, in Agueli uh, saying things like this. You must cultivate the more exalted aspect of the soul. It's necessary again to become a mystic, learning that love is the origin of all understanding. This is the kind of thing that most of the post-impressionists would have regarded as normal. Uh, so here's Cezanne, who is Agueli's friend. When I judge art, I take my painting and set it beside a God-made object like a tree or a flower. If there is a clash, it is not art. <clears throat> and again, he's not trying to produce a photographic replica of the surface of things. He's talking about what God intends by those things, the Barton, the esoteric of those things. So this is to do with a certain reaction in France, certainly against uh, the sternness of... Um, of Catholicism, the rededication of the country to their sacred heart following the defeat at the hands of the Prussians, the trauma of the Commune, a kind of really conservative, monarchical, revanchist Catholicism that is hard on the body. If you're going to be part of the serious spiritual elite, you have to be celibate. Uh, and that also regards nature in an almost Jansenist way as a kind of fallen thing that one has to transcend. And these artists were reacting very strongly against that uh, and were looking for the sacrality that was in things rather than the sacrality that is on the other side of things. <clears throat> so uh, many people at the same time thought in order to find this, we have to avoid the cold, industrialized, despiritualized environment of the North and go to brighter, warmer, more colourful places where body, mind and spirit are still in harmony. This is why Matisse goes to Morocco, does some of his most luminous and amazing paintings, including some of the mosques and Islamic scenes in Morocco, which he really loved. Uh, Gauguin, of course, goes to Tahiti, even further, looking for this kind of almost Neolithic Eden, where body, mind and spirit are still not alienated from each other, uh, and there is the tradition of Orientalist art, but that is, for the most part, even in the spirit, quite classicizing and not really part of this, this new movement. So Agueli is, is, uh, knows Gauguin and he knows Cézanne and these people, but his particular friend is somebody called Émile Bernard, who is one of the leading post-impressionists, who's also based mainly at the Académie Julien. And Bernard made a visit to Egypt, which really changed him. In Egypt, he saw a land of spirit, a land of sensual spirituality, a land of bright light, uh, a land of limitless horizons, and also a land which, compared to the highly legislated societies of Europe, seemed to be a land of freedom. And he invents the famous cloisonné technique, which is, you see in some paintings of that period, the colour blobs are separated by black lines. That essentially is from, from him. And he seeks his primordial simplicity, actually in France and with the, the Breton peasantry, 
that becomes his major focus. This is where we can seek some kind of reintegration of spirit and nature and, and uh, matter and mortality. Bernard, very definitely a, a Christian, well, a believer in God, sort of a Christian, but like a lot of these people, really interested in Eastern wisdom and uh, used to go to a theosophical lodge called the Ananta, uh, which was in Paris. Uh, theosophy had already been popular amongst the Swedish intelligentsia. Agueli certainly knew about it. Uh, Strindberg had been interested in it, members of the Swedish royal family. Um, often seen though as a kind of middle class, upper middle class, aristocratic sort of elitist club for esoteric dabblers, but certainly influential on modern art. So people like Malevich, Mondrian, uh, Kandinsky, explicitly or implicitly influenced by theosophy. Now, Agueli goes to this lodge, but the main subject of his interest in the conversations, which go on there, seem to be Swedenborg, but also Islam. Hard to figure out when that interest in Islam begins, but you have to remember in those times, the colonial times, the racist times, the strongly social Darwinian times, but there isn't sort of 9-11, Taliban, and the popular idea of Islam as necessarily a barbarian other. It's an Islamophobic environment, but somewhat different, particularly amongst these avant-garde, slightly hippie-ish people, drinking absinthe and looking for alternatives to official discourse, discourses. So, Gauguin is part of the same circle, um, um, and it was actually Bernard who introduces Agueli to, 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 to Gauguin. Um, Gauguin quite characteristic, and in some ways the kindred spirits, even though Gauguin made <coughs> various odd claims about himself, he thought that he was originally from South America and was actually an Inca savage. He had nothing to do with the, the flatness of modernity. Um, and of course, a dissolute person who ends up dying of the uh, consequences of tertiary syphilis. Um, strongly anti-clerical, he hates the priests. Um, and his great painting, which he finished you know, just before his sort of death, sort of suicide, has the words in it, where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? And Gauguin puts a kind of blue idol or statue in it, which he thought signifies the beyond. Well, it doesn't actually tell us an awful lot. Um, he seems to have been interested, like many, by Indic imagery. But um, uh, for him and for those who are interested in Indic traditions, there isn't a final resolution of the questions because everything is about rebirth. The decisive is indefinitely deferred. So, there's one of uh, Gauguin's images of Tahiti, uh, supposed Polynesian paradise. <coughs> so Agueli says, Gauguin went to Tahiti mainly to re-immerse himself in the primitive world of simple feelings. Parisian critics failed to understand that his journey was more shift in time than in space. In other words, what he was looking for was not a far place where there was still Eden, but was a kind of journey in time, looking for uh, a togetherness, an intactness of human life 
which had been torn asunder by the Enlightenment, by Catholicism, and by, uh, by modernity, by industrialization. So he was kind of a time traveler looking for some prelapsarian utopia. <coughs> uh, and as we'll see, Aguelli's movement is really quite different. Anyway, Aguelli goes back to Sweden and he has his first productive season of painting, the summers of 1891 and 1892, when he's in Gotland, which is this big island off the coast of Sweden, very picturesque. Borrows books from the Swedish National Library, and we have some indication of what he was reading. Um, he borrowed the Quran, uh, but also borrowed the Fleur du Mal, the famous uh, poems of Baudelaire, uh, which are, I suppose, uh, a lyrical, slightly pessimistic uh, declamation of the idea that body and soul cannot be separated and that spirituality comes through the body rather than through to, trying to transcend it. And of course, Mayarme, Malarme is part of that world. Malarme also seems to have converted to Islam very much in the same same vein. Now, if you want some kind of generalization as to what his paintings are saying about his spiritual journey at this time, you can always read too much into a painting, I think, and it's best not to over-analyze them. But if you look at these fairly typical images from Cézanne, uh, critics often point out that Cézanne likes to have something in the foreground that indicates our apartness from the nature that he is quite sumptuously, but with these quite earthy colours, depicting. So here you can see that, uh, of course, the human instinct is to want to walk into a landscape, but you can't easily in these cases because there's something in the way. So Cézanne here is saying that we are somehow detached from the world, from nature. And there's a sky above it with some fluffy Provençal clouds, but it's clearly not what the subject is about. Uh, the big contrast between Cézanne and his contemporary Aguelli, if we start to look at Aguelli's pictures now, is really quite different. This is from his first you know, productive period in Gotland. What's going on here? Well, you notice immediately that the human instinct, when confronted with a landscape to see how one could get into it, is facilitated by the fact that, well, it's deliberately painted to show that, yes, you could walk well into it. There's nothing to obstruct your reaching, really, the far horizon. The world, nature, is inviting you to come into it. Um, <coughs> Now, normally, <coughs> in Scandinavian painting, it's the, the Nordic light, the famous rather mm, pagan, perhaps, luminosity of uh, a sky where the light is made diffuse, but also quite enchanted by the nature of the sky, the horizon, the mist, uh, the, uh, the frequent darkness. Often that Nordic light makes us want to look at what is close to us, but Aguelli very often gives us blue skies and a far horizon. And this is what he comes to describe as a monotheist landscape. What does he mean by that? Monotheist art. Really it is the sky that determines things, the obvious symbol of transcendence. Um, and where you see the sky, you see something that, unlike the living earth, is not in a state of cycles that will come and go, but you see something that is 
of the eternal. And this again is the kind of perspective that makes people like Henri Corbin want to draw parallels between Swedenborg and Ibn Arabi, that uh, there is uh, in our contemplation of the world uh, an intuition of a transcendence that is unitary and unchanging. Um, the colours often do seem to come from, from Swedenborg, um, gold, yellow, white, signifying God, virtue, and so forth. Um, but these layered skies are important because if you look at that picture uh, and you look at the sky and you're not quite sure whether it's the landscape or the sky that is really being depicted, that big yellow thing doesn't actually look like anything you might see in the real world. It's a huge yellow blob. What is it? It couldn't really be a cloud. It couldn't be a mountain. It's an oddity. So there's a strong principle of abstraction here, which is about the divine eternity, I think, and the divine imminence. And where the layers are no longer, as with Cezanne, kind of on the earth, but the layers are, as the Sufis would say, maratib, degrees of being, the idea of the heavens as being stratified. Um, there's also something in these pictures that is you might call it an eternal seduction. There is an invitation to enter the world, that the beauty of the world is there to be. It's a kind of Edenic idea. You can imagine fruits on those trees. Um, again, Baudelaire seems to come into it. So um, here are some more cases. Uh, this is uh, another landscape in Sweden. And again, really, it's called landscape, but it's the... Uh, sky that is really significant here. And you can see these layers that somehow parallel layers on Earth. You can see there's a horizon and presumably some trees in the backdrop, but everything is, is maratib. And then this uh, famous image of, I think this is in the uh, uh, Museum of Modern Art in Stockholm. And one of his most famous paintings on postage stamps and so forth, View of Stockholm, 1892. Seems quite advanced, you think, almost of the Surrealists. It's a kind of one of those dark, de Chirico urban landscapes. Um, no human beings, though, and hardly any windows. But it invites you into it. There's the pavement. It says, come. Maybe over the horizon there'll be something <laughs> a little less depressing waiting for you. <clears throat> so it's a kind of Strindberg, Ibsen, urban anomie, something is wrong. But then look at the sky again. What on earth are those blobs, like great big whales in the sky? Uh, is that mountains? Well, not if you're in Stockholm. Clouds, but very strangely coloured and shaped clouds. So again, the idea is there is a mystery whose emblem is the physical sky. Um, here again, you can see these uh, <laughs> extraordinarily unlikely uh, images of uh, landscapes here made sort of much more abstracted, slightly, well, very, very active. There's a lot of movement in them. You could imagine that there's a storm going on, perhaps. But above, you have these, again, very unrealistic and improbable strange gradations of the gold with the blue above them when you probably expect 
something a bit different. Here again, another painting from this period, 1892. Again, you can see how easy it would be just to wander into that landscape, but then what is that weird golden thing <laughs> behind? It, it couldn't possibly be painted from nature. It's some other thing. So here is how Agüelli later described his inspiration from Cézanne. And he became quite a prolific um, writer on artistic criticism. One cannot copy Cézanne, only follow his path. This involves firstly telling the truth and the truth alone. In other words, don't paint just the boring mechanical image that is the surface of things, but the reality of things, the truth. Secondly, disciplining oneself so that one cannot tell a single lie. This discipline is simplism, namely, the desire to express the subtlest emotions with the most unprocessed and compact material. And one can see how this can converge with Islamic conceptions of art, which are about nature, but are about what lies behind the surface of nature, not simple pictures of men and women doing stuff. That's what children do at school, but something more profound, which is, in the case of Islam, which is largely a, geographic, ge uh, a largely geometrical art, uh, to see the structures, the symmetries, the mathematics, the geometry that underlies the apparent chaos of the rough surface of things. Now, uh, Agüelli in Paris uh, continued an interest that had been triggered already in radical circles in Stockholm, which is that he's associating quite consistently with uh, people who want political change. So he becomes an out-and-out anarchist. Here's one of the most famous paintings of Agüelli by his, his friend Olof Saga Nelson. I think this is also in the Swedish National Gallery and uh, probably the best-known picture of him. How you look at this picture, well, the, what is being said about his personality by his friend at this period? Quite a lot. You can see there's an odd arch in the backdrop which suggests almost that it's part of a triptych, suggesting that here we're looking at a saint, perhaps. Pre-Raphaelites might have done something like that. You have the post-impressionist parallel brushstrokes, everything leading really to that face which looks really gaunt and obsessively thoughtful. But the centre of the painting really is the hand, isn't it? It's a painting about the hand, indicating, presumably, that Agüelli is here being presented as a man of action. Not just a thinker, but a man of action. <coughs> and in his hand you have that very extraordinary thing, a kind of orange rectangle, which probably represents his tie, but looks more like a kind of dagger that he's drawing, or some fiery thing with which he's proposing to change the world. And he becomes quite prominent in anarchist circles. He did go to London, it seems, and he met Kropotkin, who was uh, the famous Russian prince who escaped dramatically, and uh, becomes, uh, after Bakunin, the, the leader of anarchism worldwide. Um, and we can easily deconstruct this, I suppose, as an urge for freedom caused by his strict upbringing. That would be the first place to go if we want to understand this. Plus, the strongly anti-clerical dimension of Swedenborg, 
who really, rather like the Quakers, believed in personal inspiration and hated religious hierarchies or the imposition of a centralized control on people, particularly in their spiritual life. So he does uh, hobnob with all the leading uh, anarchists in Paris, uh, including Charles Châtel, who's the editor of the leading anarchist journal. He even shares a flat with Charles Châtel. Uh, they seem to have been close friends. And Paris at this time is really quite unstable <coughs> and had been since the time of the Paris Commune, uh, the catastrophe of the 1870s. Um, really a hotbed of radicals. And so Agueli, looking at this increasingly regulated and statist world with its religion that was intensely hierarchical, leading to its infallible but obviously human pope, calls anarchism the most beautiful thing in our fetid age. So what kind of anarchist is he? Well, he obviously recognizes the need for some boundaries and structures, so you might call him an anarcho-syndicalist if you want to become technical. In other words, there can be free associations of workers, a syndicat is a, is a trade union. Workers should freely organize and supplant the state wherever possible. There should be a subsidiarity. People's loyalties and affiliation and acceptance of a communal duty should be based on family, on local neighborhoods, on uh, trade unions on groups that are local rather than depending on a probably corrupt uh, state that doesn't know the individual. Um, at the same time, we find that unlike some of the other anarchists, Agueli is always quite strongly determinist, not much of a believer in the sort of attractive but philosophically and scientifically very problematic idea of free will. And this again seems to be something that leads him towards uh, Islam in the longer term. And this has always been a problem for anarchist and socialist thinkers. Um, Georges Sorel tried very hard to reconcile the science, which seemed to suggest there's no free will, everything is just physical, natural processes, with the human capacity to act. Marx had tried to do something similar, but it, it was always a problem for these radicals. We know that science says that there's no free will, but on the other hand, we want to change the world. So it becomes one of the kind of agonistic moments in, in radical thought at the time, and still is to some extent. So anarchism and Islam sound like strange bedfellows, but there have been some, um, depending on one's definition. So here are four, um, taken from an interesting assortment <coughs> that one could cite, mostly from groundwater Muslims, to use that term. Huh, Isabel Eberhardt, well, many of these people, it should be added, like uh, uh, Bernard, like Agueli, like Gauguin, saw out places outside Europe as being places of spontaneity and authenticity, that there was a possibility of freedom there, which meant also North Africa, Egypt, the Middle East. It's a semi-romantic idea. Byron also seems to have taken the same view. The East was a place where you could be free, where the state wouldn't be breathing down your neck. So Eberhardt, best-known example, one of the, the best writers, really, of the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, some of you might remember about 30 years ago, there was a film about her life with Peter O'Toole. Um, she's a recognized figure. Uh, died tragically young. Uh, and then uh, the enigmatic, shall we say, figure of Hakim Bey, Peter Lambon Wilson, 
a scholar of Iranian Sufism who um, certainly self-identifies as an anarchist and is regarded as one of America's leading anarchist gurus. Uh, although I'm sure he'd be the last person in the world to consider himself Sharia compliant. Um, but he produced this interesting book, Pirate Utopias, Moorish Corsairs and European Renegados, second edition, uh, which is about uh, the converts of the type of Ward who uh, populated and prevailed in many Atlantic and uh, North African uh, Corsair towns in the 16th and 17th century. Um, some towns like Algiers, maybe the majority of the population at certain periods might have been converts to Islam. And according to Lamborn Wilson, these are the first, some of them look like being the first kind of anarchist communes. No aristocracy, no clerical hierarchy, uh, local groups, uh, anyway, you can take it or leave it, but um, he is a figure who has some uh, bridging capacity because anarchists very often tend to be against religion and against spirituality. Leda Raffanelli, who I've spoken about before, uh, came out of not just anarchism. Um, she converted to Islam in Egypt, uh, having met various Italian anarchists there uh, and became sort of best-selling novelist also said to have been Mussolini's mistress for a while, one of the key figures of Islam in Milan until the 1970s. Again, somebody who saw Islam as being a place where you go in not, not to be constrained. <coughs> and then Abdel Nur Prado, um, who is writing today, and there's others, just to get a sense of how on earth this works. How can you combine anarchism with something coming from the religion of the Sharia, the religion of Khilafah, which emphasizes you know, that there is an authority, that the khutbah is read in the name of the Khalifa. How do you fit anarchism into that? Does this work at all? Well, uh, we don't need to come to a judgment ourselves necessarily, except to uh, reflect on the fact that these 19th century people did experience Europe as very, very dirigiste. The state increasingly legislated and controlled people. You needed a passport in order to travel. The state had a file on everybody. The state was interested in your health, in your education, doing a lot of things that the traditional state never did. And it's one of the paradoxes of modernity and the Enlightenment that on the one hand, there's this discourse of liberty, freedom, equality. On the other hand, there is more and more regulation of our lives. Uh, and for many of these people, the Islamic world looked like an alternative. Nowadays, <laughs> it doesn't look like an alternative because of, as what al-Halaq has pointed out, you have the attempt to turn the Sharia into statutory law, something that the state imposes, which is not something that classical Islamic law recognizes at all. God legislates, the Qadi interprets and applies and it's done locally. Um, but just to see that this is indeed a, a, an inference that in the pre-modern Islamic world, which didn't have a pope or an infallible hierarchy, uh, and which didn't have a state that legislated, in many ways, 
the classical Islamic vision seems to look a little bit like what the anarcho-syndicalists are saying. Um, uh, and it's socially conservative, for sure, but that's not to be imposed centrally. So here's Abdunur Prado's book, published in 2010, Islam as Mystical Anarchism. It's only in Spanish at the moment, unfortunately, but it, it's a mature book and, and worth, worth serious consideration. So here's some quotes from him. Uh, just to give you a taste of what modern Muslim... He, he's not, he says quite explicitly, he's not saying that Islam is anarchical. He's saying, what if you look at Islam as a mystical anarchism? What happens? So, this is what he says. We are saying that Islamic anarchism is different from anarchism as a characteristic ideology of the European political tradition. We are saying that it has a dimension of openness to the origin, capital O, which anarchism often denies. Islam is not an ideology, does not have its final goal in the terrain of human relations. It is an integrated mode of life which orients us towards Allah and the next life. Another quote, mysticism contains within itself the idea of a spirituality liberated from forms, from the tyranny of institutions, not an individualistic or egotistic spirituality, the kind of new age thing, I'm liberating myself, I'm discovering myself, no. Something which would be a contradiction in terms, but a spirituality centered in experience, as such it is corporeal, material, an earthly spirituality. So for Prado, this also links to things like animal rights, um, eco-theologies and the like. Side by side with the vagabond dervish who despises political power and recognises no earthly authority, we encounter the totalitarian sheikh, dressed in pompous robes and sublime titles. Sufism is a complex phenomenon and cannot be reduced into being presented as Islam's mysticism. <coughs> so here he's saying he's not meaning Sufism in the straightforward way by mysticism. He's talking about those uh, aspects of religion that are to do with the direct experience of the divine, which are often subsumed under the large category of Sufism, but he doesn't like the very authoritarian types of uh, Sufism, which he sometimes encounters. At the present time, in the early 21st century, when the great corporations and media agencies possess almost unlimited power and a capacity for control, the forms of resistance cannot take the form of great ideals or projects of a totalizing nature. So he's saying, what does it mean to be an anarchist, to have this insistence on freedom from hierarchies uh, in today's world where everything is so intensely hyper-regulated? He says, realistically, you can't engage in what is great ideals or projects of a totalizing nature, but must instead be small, individual and communitarian acts of resistance. To live as an anarchist amidst the society of control and spectacle is to live side by side with other free men and women who repudiate tyranny and turn their backs on all the neon garbage by which they hypnotize us and to create liberated spaces in the middle of the society which has been swept away. Okay, so modernity, with its doctrine of freedom, actually alienates us because that freedom is secured through massive, endless legislation and restrictions. <coughs> uh, and by the limitation of human 
choices by the predetermination of our preferences and choices by the increasingly pervasive messages of mass consumerism and mass entertainment. We are not free even though we're told that we're free. So he's talking about small groups, small sort of communities rather than some kind of state exercise. So anyway, uh, it's, it's an interesting latter-day example of this genre, Islamic anarchism. And it should be said that this has uh, repercussions in today's world. Uh, these people are attracted to the traditional Islamic model of non-hierarchical religion. Uh, Agueli notes that Sufism can entail the direction of authority from the sheikh to the pupil, but it's a voluntary thing to join the tariqa. It's not a, an inevitable package within the religion. You can move to another tariqa. There's no authority above you of an ecclesial nature to tell you otherwise. <coughs> so it's still a free decision to choose your preceptor. Uh, but in terms of the exoteric authority, the authority of fatwa in Islam, there is no binding authority. There really isn't. The most that you could find is the Khalifa when he declares jihad to protect the abode of Islam. But otherwise, there is no institutional authority. The mosques are not parishes. They're not answerable to a bishop who is answerable to an archbishop, to a cardinal, to that model. It's more like the free churches, um, individual chapels that are governed congregationally rather than ecclesially. This again pushes us in the kind of libertarian Swedenborg again direction that spirituality is best secured when individual inspired communities do their own thing rather than submit to a hierarchy or a bureaucracy. But nowadays in the Islamic world, we find increasingly Islam is nationalized, do we not? Jocelyn Cesari and others have written about this, that each Arab country has its grand mufti, who is appointed by the state, by the general, or by the king, or by the emir, or whoever. Huh? And he's the one who determines right religion and wrong religion. So that's much more like a traditional Christian model or a Caesar or Papist model. The Byzantines used to do that. Uh, certainly the Russian Tsars from the time of Ivan the Terrible did that. Um, and in England, the English Reformation, Henry VIII appointed himself as the supreme governor of the Church of England. And to this day, all of those British politicians who moralize at Muslims and say, you ought to separate religion from politics, <laughs> need to remember that the supreme governor of the Church of England is also the head of state in England. And that the prayer book is changed by act of parliament in English law. And that there are bishops in the House of Lords. Uh, it's a, a Caesar, a papist setup. Uh, and this is the model that's being adopted in a lot of Muslim countries where the state wants to control religion for reasons of security, usually. But Fortunately, us in the West, we're not subject to the authority of any of those national churches. And if they create a, an Islamic cultural center in Berlin or somewhere supported by Muslim embassies, has no authority over us. Mm. We can just say no. 
So this is part of the argument for a, an anarchist interpretation of Islam, that it, it doesn't recognize centralized religious or clerical authority. <coughs> anyway, so back to Agueli, he's in Paris, he's hobnobbing with these dangerous anarchists, he's living with one of their leaders, and in 1894 he is arrested. The police have swept Paris in order to arrest the leading anarchist troublemakers. And he hasn't done anything directly, but he's certainly been associating with uh, Châtel and some of these other people. So, one of the famous trials in France in the 19th century was the so-called Procès des Trente, the lawsuit of the 30. 30 leading anarchist radicals are tried, with the possibility of the guillotine for some of them. Uh, and many of them are sentenced to very long sentences. So during the trial, he is sent off to Mazas prison, which is a nasty prison in Paris. And this is the kind of Papillon environment. If you've seen that film, Steve McQueen, uh, not a pleasant environment. The conditions are harsh. <laughs> but he does say, um, at least it's not as boring as Sweden. <laughs> he said that after he was released. Anyway, he puts the time in prison to good use. Learning languages. Um, uh, including Hebrew and Arabic, and we know which books he asked his friends outside to supply. Uh, Swedenborg's texts, the Qur'an, works of grammar. And it seems that his way of learning Arabic was that he asked for St. John's Gospel in Arabic, because he knew the Gospel so well that if he read it in Arabic, he could kind of f figure out what the language was saying. Very uh, unusual uh, way of learning Arabic. 12th of August, his case comes to trial. The jury can't agree and he's actually acquitted. He gets off. <coughs> so his mother then sends him some money, goes off to Egypt to join his friend Bernard. And it's in Egypt that he encounters Islam. Look at these things that he is saying. Belief in a supreme being, which is above all others, Allah. He's not Muslim at this stage. Monotheism is the essence of Christ's teachings. So important that the faithful Muslim is more Christian than most Christians. No trinity. This is how I conceive a modern monotheist in terms of outward morality. Fanatical towards himself, tolerant towards others, an intense thirst for the infinite. So as in Egypt, there's plenty of anarchist activity in Egypt, as we saw in 1900, Leda Raffanelli converts to Islam in Alexandria. Alexandria is full of Italian anarchists. Um, the anarchists have even organized a university in Alexandria, but it's not clear that Agueli had anything to do with that particular group. But of course, what he wants to do is some art. So um, I'm including this, if you can see it. This is actually one of the sketches I did when I was in Egypt, <laughs> before I became Muslim. Not very good. This is the mosque of Baybar Ghashankir, which is near Baba Sharia. So I just wanted to include that just for reasons of ego, really. But this is uh, Agueli in Egypt. He calls this painting Egyptian cupola. Again, there is Agueli's road into the image you even have a choice of roads. You can take that road to the right, or you can go up that 
slope and maybe go into one of those doors. It's a very accessible place, even though that wall seems to be blind. And then you have the cupola, really interested in the idea of squares, cubes, representing the earthly instantiation of a heavenly symmetry. This is why with Apollinaire he becomes interested in cubism later on. Uh, and then right at the top you can see a few blobs of white indicating the usual weird thing he does with his skies. Those aren't mountains, not in Cairo. This is probably somewhere in the Southern Cemetery. Darb al-Ahmar, maybe. Uh, but he's doing this arrangement, this gradation of the sky. And he finds the desert light more monotheistically interesting as an artist than the Nordic light. And he does a lot of very bright tableau during this period. And uh, of course, uh, uh, the light of the south had inspired Cezanne and Pissarro and uh, Van Gogh. And of course, Matisse goes to Morocco. It's really interesting. And here he feels there's a kind of holism. He does these images. He doesn't do many buildings when he's in Paris, but he does in Cairo but not many figures in the buildings, but it's about the totality of everything coming together under the desert sky. So he says, in Paris you can usefully study analysis, but in Cairo you study synthesis. Mm. Not really about theorizing things out, it's about seeing that everything forms part of a single totality. Uh, that, I take it, is the Goyushi Mosque, which is on the Mokatam Hills, um, which is still there, near the uh, Teke of Kaigusus Abdal. Um, again, look at those strange clouds in the backdrop and how they seem to somehow reflect or even blend with lines in the foreground, as if the horizon isn't the decisive boundary between here and there, imminence, transcendence, down and up, but is just uh, another grade in the grades of being. It's a bit more Pissarro-like, perhaps, and the cloud is not doing its usual thing. I'm not quite sure where that is, but I suspect that is in the citadel, one of the mosques in the citadel, I may be wrong, and so on. Uh, that is the Qarafa, the Southern Cemetery. Now, of course, it's full of people, but I guess back then it was like this. And again, you get the sense of earth and sky mirroring each other through gradations that clearly interact. You can see how the foreground blends into a lighter colored sand. And then above this horizon, you get a lighter colored sky and then a darker colored sky, as if there's a kind of strip across it. Anyway. As I said, we, we shouldn't over-theorise these things, but his ideas about heaven being made of degrees of being, which is in Swedenborg, but certainly in Sufism as well, are becoming uh, quite uh, concrete here. So everything is shimmering into a unity, not through the kind of Scandinavian mists, but through the intensity of the, the light. So he writes this, a landscape can reflect a state of mind. The monotheistic landscape is sunlit, illuminated by penetrating sunshine, a light powerful enough to let the aerial perspective supersede the linear. Light is master of matter. 
Uh, he leaves Egypt and goes back to France where he stops painting um, and starts a career as an art critic where he writes rather well about art and continues his studies. Uh, he really wants to study Oriental languages more systematically, so he goes to the best school in, in France, the best university, which is the École Pratique des Hautes Études, where he does Arabic and Sanskrit and ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, but he also reads for himself quite extensively on Islam. His early interest has definitely been intensified by his experience of Egypt and by the fact that it's a country where religion is not centrally regulated, unlike in France. In 1898, he takes the plunge and he converts to Islam in Paris, not in Egypt. Slow process. Of course, there's various elements of his life, some of which we have already seen uh, and are evident in his art. The unity of things through a kind of transcendent light, integration of body and soul, the value of eros, the intactness of Islam's practices, something primordial about the prayer which nobody has interfered with. It seems that he had some kind of literary contact with Ibn Arabi, even in this early period, but we don't really know how or where. So in a sense, he's looking to reroute himself. He has intuited this spiritual reality behind the landscapes of Sweden and Cairo, and he wants now a theology a kind of explanation in words of what's going on. And Islam provides this more explicitly, clearly, than Swedenborg, and is also represented in living societies. He can actually see it when he goes to Cairo. And that's perhaps why he does incorporate human structures into his Egyptian landscape, something which, as we saw, he doesn't, doesn't really do when he's painting in Sweden. So, converts in France, and then the next year goes back to Egypt, and then on to India and Sri Lanka. He's a Muslim now. He's sleeping rough in madrasas. He just sleeps on the floor. Um, he's never been a man of dunya, as we will see. And this is where he starts writing his most significant articles on Islam under his new Muslim name, Abdul Hadi. So Ibn Agweli becomes Abdul Hadi Aqili. In Sri Lanka, he associates with the entourage of Ahmed Urabi, who's the famous Egyptian nationalist hero, the Azhari, who uh, the uh, English have imprisoned and then deported to Sri Lanka with other pro-independence uh, Europeans. Uh, obviously, as an anarchist and a left-wing person, Argeli is always completely against imperialism. Uh, there is also, of course, a sort of love interest. Mm -hmm. But as you would expect by now from Agueli, uh, it's a bit strange. This is Marie Uo, who was his muse and the woman in his life. <laughs> she was 20 years older than him. Um, he met her, it seems, in, in 1893 on this, this, this trip to Paris. And she is married to one of Agueli's publishers, Anatole Uo, who edits a left-wing uh, publication called the Encyclopédie Contemporaine Illustrée. And she's a very active, uh, smart woman. She has her own literary salon, uh, and also another keen spiritualist and theosophist. That's kind of her spiritual home in theosophy. Uh, Woe is about 20 years older than him, um, 1846-1930, 
And it seems pretty unlikely that their relationship had an, ever had an intimate dimension, as we would say nowadays, but still very deep. She's a kind of muse. They're kindred spirits. They immediately kind of recognise something in each other. And she dedicates one of her poetry anthologies to him. Incidentally, um, she's not the same as the Marie Ouault, who is a modern French poet, who is also good, but, but quite different. So she's an anarchist, of course, a symbolist, radical, avant-garde, ahead of her time, particularly an animal rights activist. So she was known for having encountered a vivisectionist and physically attacking him. Uh, she went to a lecture by Pasteur, uh, the famous biologist, uh, and interrupted him, heckled him during his lecture because he'd conducted experiments on dogs. And Agueli, of course, is the son of a vet, had also been very committed to animal rights. She has some other radical ideas. She advocates la grève des ventres, the belly strike. She thought that women should refuse to have children because the human race brings so much suffering to other humans and to the world. Technology is going to kill us as well as killing the animals. So abortion and birth control, she thought, should be free. So she writes a rather dark book called Le Mal de Vivre, uh, which advocates the voluntary extinction of the human race. You can get some very radical green activists nowadays advocating this, but this is really quite, quite hardcore. Um, so Agueli is, you know, Kropotkin also, um, seems to have discussed animal rights with, with Agueli, but Agueli has that orientation anyway. It's quite common in anarchist circles. Um, and so Agueli <coughs> writes things like this. It's more perfect and pure to donate to someone who seems weak or inferior than to donate to an equal or to someone more powerful. Kindness to an animal takes us even closer to God because our ego is less involved. Uh, the animal doesn't care who you are, isn't really going to express gratitude, and therefore kindness done to animals is somehow spiritually and morally superior than kindness done to human beings, where there might be a more ambiguous uh, reaction and the possibility of a quid pro quo. So this is Agueli's painting <coughs> of one of the street cats he adopted when he was in Sri Lanka. He called her Mabroka, and she was blind and pregnant, so of course he took her in. Uh, so he had that kind of romantic dimension. Marie Ouault also really interested in Islam and Sufism, and she even thought that she had some Arab blood in her ancestry, and therefore was naturally inclined towards nature, towards the earth, towards love, towards the warmth of the South. <laughs> so he's back in the anarchist world. He joins protests and even riots in Paris. And then there takes place an event in which he actually hits the headlines. In the year 1900, uh, Spanish-style bullfighting is introduced in France. They've always had a kind of bullfighting in the south of France, and they still have it, but the animal isn't killed. It's not like the Spanish thing where the spears and the sword, <coughs> uh, and the animal actually usually dies. Uh, and Uo and her boyfriend, or friend, Agueli, are outraged by this. <coughs> so Agueli goes to one of the first bullfights near Paris, 
putting on kind of extravagant fancy dress and takes a pistol with him, a revolver. And when the thing starts, he jumps into the ring and opens fire at the matador, misses him, but wounds one of the matador's assistants, one of the picadors or whatever they are. So of course the gendarme immediately take him into custody. He's in prison again. This is more serious uh, attempted murder. Uh, it's outrageous. It's in the newspapers. Um, as it was intended to be, he could have faced the guillotine quite quite easily. Huh. And there you have uh, his police mugshot on his arrest. So this is what he says, and he makes a number of impassioned uh, speeches in front of the judge uh, defending what he'd done. If I'd permitted this evil act to take place before my eyes and had done nothing, I would have to answer before God as the accomplice to a criminal. But the success or failure of act is in the hands of God alone. I've confirmed humanity's nobility and royalty by defending those lower than me from my equals. So the case is heard. Public opinion throughout France is more or less entirely in favour of him, particularly since there seems to have been a woman involved, and this is France, and it looks like some great quixotic romantic gesture. Uh, and the judge comes to sentence him, finds him guilty, but it's not the guillotine. He just gives him a tiny little fine to pay and is let off. <laughs> so Marie, the, the woman, is by now really impressed and says, one thing alone have you done for love of me and of religion, the gunshot. Uh, and that actually seems to have been the end of serious bullfighting in France after that, because public opinion has been so inflamed by this, um, it, it, it dies away. Um, and is now, of course, confined to some parts of Spain, and even there it's under considerable pressure. But uh, he goes back to Cairo, and here he wants to continue his studies. There's a picture of him in Egypt, not really looking very Swedish at all now. Uh, and he studies at Al-Azhar, and he takes bay'ah in the tariqah of Asadat al-Shadaliya with somebody called Abdurrahman Alish. And this is his great period of learning and spiritual progress, 1902 to 1909. And he's very close to Alish, as you can see from this quote, which he pens just in a letter, I think, to Uul. Most of the information we have about his life really comes from the letters that, thankfully, have often been preserved. You know the great affection Sheikh Alish has for me. Now, Sheikh Alish was an intimate friend of the Amir Abdul Qadir of Algiers. The Sheikh himself washed his body and buried him by the side of Ibn Arabi in Damascus. The Sheikh called me Muhyiddin, which is one of Ibn Arabi's names, even before he knew that I was his disciple. Uh, so Agueli is confiding with Uwal about these sort of inner transformations and affiliations that he is going through. And Alish is a very senior uh, member of the Maliki Madhab in Egypt. Um, and he'd been uh, imprisoned by, for, by the British for supporting the Orabi rebellion. Um, 
And Orabi himself had been a student of Alish's father, Muhammad Alish, who was the Sheikh of the Malikiya in Egypt, um, who's also a Shadali. And uh, the elder Alish actually died in prison. And the son went to Damascus and associated with Amir Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi, who is one of the really great figures of uh, Islamic resistance to colonialism in the 19th century, the great hero of the jihad against the French, um, cheated by the French so many times, members of his family killed, and eventually ends up in Ottoman Damascus, where he famously intercedes to save the Christians of Damascus from a riot by the Druze. Um, so very much a person who is not a person of revenge, but a person of, of adl and compassion. And this uh, Emir Abdul Qadir saw as being part of Ibn Arabi's tradition, that everything in creation is precious and inviolable because it represents a particular pointer towards the divine. There's nothing in the world that isn't a particular manifestation of the divine names, Jalal and Jamal. God is absolutely transcendent. We say Allahu Akbar, but everything in the world is uh, directly, not indirectly related to him. The being of the world is from God. So uh, this kind of interpretation of Ibn Arabi uh, has often been quite attractive to groundwater Muslims in Europe, I would say, because it makes sense of your being in a largely Christian or non-Muslim environment, gives you a basis for toleration and compassion. Uh, so there seems to be in a close Irshad Murid relationship with Ageli during these seven years, and he went on a khalwa, a, a seclusion or a retreat. But as this quote seems to indicate, he'd had a kind of connection with Ibn Arabi since 1893, he thought, when he seems to have seen Ibn Arabi in a dream, creating a kind of oasis affiliation of the kind that we referred to briefly uh, in the lecture on Ahmed Bullock. So in Cairo, he becomes good at Arabic um, and writes in Arabic uh, and translates some of Ibn Arabi's shorter rasail or epistles into French. Uh, he lives in a single room near the citadel, the Qala, and resumes work as a journalist, columnist in a publication that is in Italian and in Arabic called Anadi or Il Convito, which becomes his main platform for his writing at the time, uh, where his main theme is the disaster of the westernizing of Arab culture. So there's a, an issue of Anadi from the time. And the editor or the co-editor was a strange Italian by the name of Enrico Insabato, who was also an anarchist. Now, Insebato uh, was probably an Italian spy of some kind, freelance or official, who uh, produced this uh, magazine to try and encourage the Arabs into a pro-Italian stance and thereby to undermine British and French imperialism and also Ottoman imperialism because um, some of the articles were also written in, in Turkish. But whatever Insebato's intentions might have been, this is a platform for Agueli, and some of his key writings appear in this periodical. And Marie Ouault also sends some pieces from France, which are published in Cairo. 
So this is where he makes his debut in some ways as a Muslim writer, as Abdul Hadi. And it really is a debut in some quite notable ways. So for instance, in 1904, he writes an article on Western feminism, which seems to be the first analysis ever by a Muslim of Western feminism, explaining what it is, where it comes from, uh, and giving an Islamic perspective on it, specifically from uh, not a utilitarian discourse, but from the perspective of Ibn Arabi's very uh, exalted view of the, the meaning and the symbolism of gender. Uh, so that's important. He is the first ever Muslim to write on this major modern Muslim uh, movement from an uh, Islamic perspective. 1904 also, he is the first person in the world to use the word Islamophobia. Seems he invents it. Uh, and he identifies its forms because he writes a lot about anti-Muslim prejudice and how it's different in Germany, in France and Russia and amongst uh, religious Christ Christians. And he attacks Muslim governments for not fighting Islamophobia. Why do they complain about this prejudice around the world? Uh, well, why don't they do something about it? So uh, if we actually allow him to speak, uh, just to give you an example of the kind of things that he's writing at the time. You can see his, he doesn't pull any punches. Remember, he's this anarchist activist who's been rioting in Paris. Latin thought is directed by a priesthood that has relapsed into paganism and does not wish to understand the East. Germanic thought cannot do so, being too obtuse. The German thinker, like certain patients, absorbs a great deal but digests nothing. Arian par excellence, he thinks only with an inferior part of his being, which is not amongst the superior human faculties. <coughs> Protestant and vivisectionist, unless he converts to some form of Semitism, he will always be a man of the winter sun with eyes of chilling frost. It is by the anti-mystical priest and his two reckless auxiliaries, the missionary and the Levantine, that Germanic materialism impedes the union of East and West. On the other hand, the East is not without fault. It has neglected the greater holy effort, al-Jihad al-Akbar, and has done nothing to spread the teachings of Islam amongst the Europeans, who in turn have been allowed to penetrate deep into the East for lucrative reasons. <coughs> but this is only a semblance. In reality, they are unconsciously drawn by an invisible force towards a Semitic conversion. This is something that many Groundwater Muslims have noted that there's always at the deep level of so many European minds the attraction to the East, the attraction to Islam, the kind of Byronic idea that's more than just romanticism. But the Muslims in the East are doing nothing to support this. He writes a lot in this Il Convito um, on Sufism as the essential key to maintaining Muslim authenticity. Uh, because it is the discipline of self-knowledge, <coughs> which is vital. So he attacks what he calls the Calvinists of Islam, by which he means mainly Rashid Rida and his followers, because they obstruct the cultivation of beauty and they find it difficult to tolerate diversity. <coughs> so he says, if Sufism declines, Islam will collapse into crisis. There's the thought. Let's voice it again. If Sufism declines, Islam will collapse into crisis. The bay'ah, the initiation, he says, puts one in touch with one's naked self. 
illusion stripped away, ikhlas, niya, safat, khulos, through the bay'ah, through the initiation. Now, part of his agenda is very much, because he's writing in European languages as well as writing in Arabic, by this stage he writes nice Arabic, um, he wants to deculturalize Islam. One of the veils that has kept Europeans from Islam is the sense that it's this exotic thing with camels and shishas. So he presents Islam as the universal religion. And he says Islam's promise is not to alienate Europe, but to return it to its authenticity. This is really important for even for CMC's idea of Islamization, meaning the resuscitation of what's indigenously authentic, which to a lot of kind of UKIP types seems a contradiction in terms. But this is what he says <coughs> on this. <coughs> the most striking feature of Islam is its vital intensity, seen above all in its homogeneity. All Muslims recognize themselves according to a special trait. All Muslim works of art or literature bear an original imprint. Yet each does so according to his own land. Thus the Arabs, Turks, Persians, Indians, Malays, Berbers, Sudanese, etc. all still differ from each other. Each one masterfully synthesizes his sky and the plot of earth on which he lives with the Arabic formulae. No one is expatriated by the religion of the Arabs, yet they still stand united. <coughs> I shall take it even further. I maintain that the Persian became more Persian after his Islam than ever before, and that the Indian came to grasp Indian nature far better than the Hindu. The Muslim art of India, despite its rigorous formulae, reflects the country far more faithfully than Hindu art, thereby manifesting the great power of spirit over matter, an equilibrium of well-established consciousness, a greater cosmic charity and redemptory force. <coughs> Thus, Islam is a discipline that emancipates. At once both regional and universal, it places the homeland within the heart of man, enabling him to feel at home everywhere. It's the only creed on earth that is stronger than any atavism or heredity. I've seen Hindus and Buddhists transfigured after only a few years of practicing Islam. One could have said they had come to change their race. So this is very kind of up-to-date stuff when we talk about Islam in the West and Islam in Europe. What he's saying is that Islam is a repatriation, that the groundwater Muslim has become more of his land and his place than the one who is not Muslim. Anyway, these are important thoughts, I think. Uh, he also writes about the types of spirituality which work for him. He says that the highest human type is the malamatiya, this is the traditional term of somebody who does not attract attention to himself through being spectacularly good or religious. Ordinary people of basic outward compliance, they say their prayers, but in whom God has hidden the light of wilaya, of sainthood and of qurb. <coughs> he says Islam is the religion of polycentrism and diversity. This again fits in very well with his decentralizing anarchist instincts. So he points in his writing to the very many tariqas and the different madhabs. All, he says, guard the maqasid as sharia. Holy Prophet is the exemplar of the middle way. He combines the spiritual and the temporal, unity and diversity, the different social classes. So he says Sufism 
uh, without which, he says, Islam will collapse into crisis, offers the West a way back to a balance between spirit and body. This world and the next are pure monotheism that will also reconnect them in an authentic way to Jesus, the monotheist. <coughs> so in this magazine, he gets some sheikhs to write, like his own sheikh, uh, Alish, uh, Muhammad Farid Wagdi, who's quite a well-known author of a tafsir at the time, also writes. He translates the Risalat al-Malamatiyah of Sulami, uh, the Maratib al-Wujud ideas, uh, rooted, of course, in the Ayat al-Nur, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. He commends Ibn Arabi also because he sees him as being the kind of author who is sober. He doesn't think that the ecstatic type of spirituality with shatahat and strange mysterious utterances, the tearing of clothes, is appropriate. But it's still a love-based type of religion. He translates Awhad al-Din Balyani's uh, Risalat al-Ahadiyyah, um, which has also been done more recently into French by the French Muslim scholar Michel Chodkevich. Um, so when he's painting, what he's trying to do is to paint not existence, but being, to put it in Akbarian terms, not the mawjood, but wujud itself, that which is found. In other words, the world in divinis, uh, the world as it truly is and truly indicates. So the presence of the divine, again, this is very different from the kind of Augustinian idea of a gulf. But there is the divine presence in the world through, in Ashuri context, occasionalism. The world is renewed in every instant. God is not a kind of deistic figure that starts it off and then watches it go wrong. God is there in every instance. And in Ibn Arabi's system, as Aguali notes, this is the tajdid al-khalq bil-anfas. The world is renewed, made completely new again in each divine exhalation. Um, so the end of dualism, God is zahir and batin. So he's really an Ibn Arabi fan. He says Ibn Arabi is a Leonardo in the form of philosophy. He's also, and this is interesting, not the kind of stereotypical anti-Western convert, although he can be quite anti-Christian, but he's trying to build some kind of harmony between East and West, a symbiosis. So he thinks that the Templars once had tried to do that with the incorporation of certain forms of Eastern wisdom and that they were destroyed by the church and that the West hasn't really been able to integrate um, the higher spirituality of Islam into itself since that time. So he doesn't like it when Muslims in France write fiercely anti-Western polemic and condemn all Westerners. And this, again, seems to be a very kind of up-to-date perspective. So, um, here <coughs> he says, we have read in La Revue the open letter of Sheikh Abdul Haq to Europe in the name of pan-Islamism, okay, which is a kind of anti-Western screed. The Honorable Sheikh is wrong to direct his hatred against all Europeans. In the free nations of Italy, France, and England, true Democrats are doing their utmost to at first hinder the policies of colonial expansion, and then they always, in the name of justice, take the side of the indigenous victims of their own compatriots. There are those who, for the sake of this cause, not only risk their careers and their fortunes, but also their lives. 
And then to those who say, well, why don't they convert to Islam? The European, how do you want him to pray? He who has never heard the call of the Muezzin. In his cold country, sad and cursed by the abandonment of God, he has lost his hieratic sense. Therefore, ritual and prayer remain closed to him. The absence of sacred architecture, decor and color make profound and religious emotions difficult, as well as perceptions of the eternal and fixed world. In spite of this, it's rather rare to find a European who is hostile to the Muslims for any other reason than ignorance. He wants to learn from elsewhere, but a sound education is difficult to obtain when it comes to the East. Know then that there are highly powerful parties in whose vital interest it is that East and West should hate each other. They only exist due to this loathing, and the day that East and West truly get to know each other, the powers of darkness shall be vanquished. Many Europeans have converted to Islam. The educated, independent European almost always loves the East, not only by fashion, but by taste. If Muslims had been familiar with the spirit of the Europeans, there would have been conversions in droves. I've known Europeans who have been moved by the recitation of the sublime Qur'an, by the contemplation of beautiful and ancient mosques, and by processions and religious gatherings. A new convert who was insidiously asked why he'd become a Muslim replied, I love minarets more than factory chimneys, and I prefer the turban to the black hat. The literary beauty of the Qur'an is a proof of its celestial origin. The beauty in architecture, decor and life is not only the work of a faith that is intense and pure, but it is also the foremost weapon and safeguard of that very faith. So this is his great period in Cairo when he's developing his ideas. 1909, he returns to Europe. He seems to have had a break with Marie, but there, the friendship is renewed the following year. And he starts publishing again in Marie's husband's kind of journal, the Encyclopédie, writing as Abdel Hadi. But he also writes in another periodical, a new one, La Gnos, which is edited by René Guénon. There it is, and you can see uh, lots of languages at the top. Al-Ishraq is there somewhere, which is supposed to be something analogous to the idea of Gnosis. And then on the right is a later uh, sort of epitome of some of his writings for La Gnos in French, published more recently. And his most important essays on art are from this period. So he writes on the Italian futurists. Uh, interestingly, the futurists uh, through Marinetti have also been the ones who trigger the conversions of Leda Raffanelli, um, Valentin de Saint-Point, and a number of other creative people. Quite influential by this time as a critic, pointing to what he saw as the key tension in artistic and literary modernism, which is that there is a, a discord between modernism's love of movement and technology with Marinetti and its awareness that we are alienated from the primordial. How do you sort that? So he writes on cubism, which he likes as a geometry of enclosure and presence which points to transcendence and seems to have some sort of... It's an attempt to do what Islamic geometrical art does much better. So he becomes friendly with Apollinaire, who is a poet and advocate of cubism. Apollinaire, I think, is the man who invents the word cubism. So they are also looking for something transcendent, for the order behind the chaos of things. And that's one reason why he likes the square of Islamic architecture, the cube, the domed mausoleum. So on the left there is Apollinaire, 
the crazy poet, and on the right, his other friend at this time, his publisher, René Guénon, who is releasing this journal, Lagnos. And there is a really uh, titanic meeting of an association that Ageli tries to establish in Paris called Al-Akbaria, in which he's trying to bring his Egyptian Ibn Arabi wisdom and his Shadali initiation to these spiritual seekers in this very busy, complex, experimental world of uh, Paris. <coughs> uh, and one evening, uh, the opening ceremony for this new Akbaria takes place, and a lot of intellectuals are there, including René Guénon. And after expounding the teachings of the Sheikh al-Akbar and the, the beauty of Islam, René Guénon takes his shahada, some others, including somebody called Léon Champrenant, who's also significant in esoteric circles, also become Muslim. But this is quite titanically important because Guénon becomes, out of all of these people, by far the most widely read. And he takes the name Abdul Wahid Yahya. Um, and it's from that time that Guénon situates himself solidly in, as he put it, a form of tradition. So to convert Guénon is a pretty important thing because Guénon's influence is all over the place, sometimes uh, through various misunderstandings. Julius Evola and various fascistoid mid-20th century thinkers, like his critique of the modern world, but not really his advocate, advocacy of religion. Steve Bannon uh, and other troublemakers, um, Alexander Dugin, who was Putin's Rasputin for a while, people who will not accept, usually for ego, Eurocentric reasons, I think, Guénon's option for Islam, but really like his criticism of the modern world. He's one of the, the significant thinkers of the 20th century, I would think, but he doesn't go to Egypt, Guénon doesn't go to Egypt until 1930, um, much, much later. So Guénon is converted to Islam and receives a bay'ah into the Shadaliyah because Agali seems to have been appointed to be the muqaddam of the Shadaliyah by, by his sheikh in Cairo. <coughs> but they're always different. Um, Agali is really not what is sometimes colloquially described as a perennialist. He doesn't believe that all of the religions in their pre-modern form are perfect instantiations and paths up a different mountain. Um, as we can see from his writing, he doesn't think that Aztec human sacrifice and so forth uh, could possibly be right. So um, if you look at some of Agueli's writings, you can see this quite clearly. <coughs> he can be quite polemical. Islam is the only religion in the world that can do without clergy or sacerdotal institutions of any form as it firmly rests upon the basis of tradition. The clerical concept is evidently anti-Islamic, which is why priests of all robes and sects harbour a fierce loathing of Muslims. That these in fact respect Christian priests in accordance with the strict command of the Quran is of no consequence to them. Thus imagine a belief that renders the entire anthropomorphic enterprise superfluous or even noxious. <clears throat> Two things necessitate the priest, the idol and the conventionalism of sentiments referred to as sentimentalism. Etc. Idol, priest, and sentimentalism are three aspects of all anthropomorphic religions. Islam is not such a religion. So this is um, clearly not an idea of the equal soteriological value of all traditional religions. But to deal with that would take us, I think, in a direction that we don't have 
time to explore. 1911 goes back to Sweden, does more painting there. Um, 1912, back to Paris. Apollinaire has invited him to write a book about art. Unfortunately, he never gets around to uh, writing it. His paintings now seem to be a little bit different. There's a more obvious mysticism, perhaps slightly didactic in his paintings of this period, clearly depicting the sovereignty of, of, of light, painting with the eye of the heart that sees the divine in everything. <clears throat> um, he sees art as being akin to worship, exists to demonstrate existence. It's an enactment of an ontological insight. 1913. <clears throat> can't resist it, goes back to Egypt, paints some more, uh, lives in very considerable poverty. His only real source of income, apart from a few pennies for his art criticism, has been occasional small sums sent by his mother from Sweden. <clears throat> now, this is 1913, between the Balkan Wars, when the Ottoman Empire lost its European provinces, and the First World War. It's very political. <clears throat> Egypt is strategic. There's the Suez Canal. Um, Gaza, just the other side really of Sinai, is in Ottoman hands. And the British suspect Agueli of being some kind of Ottoman spy. He's a traditionalist Muslim, so he must be. And the choice that faced Muslims in the Middle East at the time was pretty stark. Either the Khalifa or British and French promises of prosperity and some kind of autonomy, um, unspecified. Um, the evidence now suggests that the majority of people in the Middle East supported the Khalifa, despite the kind of Lawrence of Arabia myth of the Arabs somehow being liberated from their own people and, and uh, kissing the hands of their British and French liberators. It, it, that's a kind of post uh, hoc reconstruction of what actually happened. So he's being followed. Cairo is the center of the Arab Bureau and all kinds of spy machinations, as it was during the Second World War. Second World War, there was a famous, I guess it was MI5 or military intelligence headquarters in Garden City, a big apartment building. <laughs> uh, wasn't terribly well disguised because it was called Secret House in Egypt. And even when I went to Egypt and lived there, you know, you, even the taxi drivers knew where Secret House was. Are you where you be? Or are you in Secret House, they would say. <laughs> Not very well disguised. Um, but, uh, yeah, the First World War, this is the centre of all kinds of machinations. After four Ottoman centuries, the Europeans, the Christians, are pushing in and they want to bring as many Arabs as they can. So the Swedish embassy offered to pay him to go back to Sweden, neutral Sweden. But he can't afford to take his painting, so he declines that. Um, he doesn't want to leave them in Cairo. Eventually, the British kick him out. They deport him to Barcelona in neutral Spain, where he's completely destitute. He's unable to rent even the simplest accommodation. And even though it's a hotbed of anarcho-syndicalism, he's regarded as an outsider, a weird Muslim, probably a spy of some kind, and the anarchist movement there reject him. So he's literally a tramp, he's living on the streets. Uh, and his hearing has really deteriorated. So on the 1st of October, 1917, wandering around somewhere near Barcelona, 
is hit by a train and he dies. So uh, a sad end, but a kind of maybe a sort of appropriate, obscure, surprising end to somebody who was a dervish, wacy, malamity kind of person. So we should wind up pretty soon. The theme of fakr, of holy poverty in his life, is pretty salient. Um, one winter when he went to Stockholm, he would wear a kind of sheet thing and a blanket with newspapers tied front and back. He really looked like a complete, complete tramp, a really bohemian, somebody said, with his eccentric appearance, combining Socrates and Zola, he attracted attention wherever he went. Sometimes he would have to copy out books in libraries because he couldn't afford to buy them. In Egypt, he lived on bread and figs and used to sleep on a pile of old books because he didn't have a bed, really a, a zahid. Sick often. So this is his own sense of that type of spirituality, the spirituality of the outcast. Straightened conditions, poverty and the hostility of enemies are nothing but a lesson and they lead to more boldness externally and a better closeness to God internally. Praises for Allah forever. <coughs> After difficulty comes ease, as the Quran says. In actuality, constraint and liberation bring the same results to he who is blessed and also to he who is cursed. <coughs> so he sees this as faithfulness to the prophetic example. Holy Prophet lived in a state of poverty, the nobility of giving, charity, um, not blaming others. This is all part for him of the malamity ethos. Um, we could quote more from his um, quite amazing writings about that. Uh, and he says that the decline of this malamity ethos, caring for others, caring for animals, loving God, seeing God in others, the decline of that signals the decline of the Muslim world. But again, one of the points we've been trying to make is that it was a rooted journey. Remember, his conversion was in Paris. <coughs> he became convinced of Islam, ultimately for Western reasons. It's because of this particular journey that many dissident Europeans had taken. Anarchist, uh, post-impressionist, rather bohemian types, sipping absinthe in dubious bars in Montmartre. It was that world that led on to the discovery of, of Islam. So one of the contributors to uh, Sedgwick's volume uh, puts it this way. From the perspective he described of the Malamatiya, he succeeded phenomenally in living without ever selling his soul, without celebration of his merits, and dying as humbly as those whose lives he defended. So uh, that's all I wanted to say about the extraordinary, perhaps tragic, uh, but in many ways very energetic and sincere life of uh, Sheikh Abdul Hadi Aqili, uh, <coughs> who it can be said is a kind of founder of groundwater Islam in Europe. And his particular reception of the way of Amir Abdul Qadir with its uh, traditional <coughs> tolerance, respect for difference, respect for others, respect for the diversity of religions, respect for the diversity of the Muslims, uh, is probably 
the best way that Muslims will find to go uh, as they try to find <coughs> a space for them that is more than just a survival strategy as beleaguered and misunderstood communities in the Europe of late modernity. So may Allah, inshallah, grant his rahmah to his soul and give us benefit from remembering his story. Barakallahu feekum, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.